Today is the 30th anniversary of the Waco siege, and we're going to do a deep dive on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to The Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and the Deep State. Let you in on the news the traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 354 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023, the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the Waco siege. Now, just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this really different kind of talk show were unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, click on the button that says Become a Patron. We deeply appreciate all of our patrons. We can't thank you enough. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out our new conservative sports podcast, Red Pill Sports, with my friend Donnie Copeland. It drops Tuesday evenings at 11 p.m. Central. The 30th anniversary of the beginning of the Waco siege. Now, I remember where I was on the 51st day, the last day of the Waco siege, when they burned 76 Branch Davidians to death. I was less than 90 90 minutes away, sitting in a radio studio, Radio station KIXL, your Christian information station in Austin, Texas. Sitting there watching a little black and white TV and just feeling all kinds of horrible, all kinds of emotions, knowing they're killing men, women, and children, and there's nothing I can do about it. Seeing it happen in real time on the television set there at the radio station, less than 90 minutes away in Austin, Texas. There's a whole lot I didn't know then that I found out later. Um, so I came across a few things on today, the 30th anniversary, that I uh, I want to share with you. One of them is a compilation that the group Gun Owners of America put together. And I appreciate them going to the trouble. On their tweet, they said, Today marks the 30th anniversary of the start of the ATF and FBI siege on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, 
the massacre is a prime example of what can happen when agencies are given too much leeway. In the next tweet, they say, Gun owners of America will continue to fight the Biden administration's attempts to strengthen the reach of these agencies. Well, God bless them for that. Let me, uh, let me share the compilation with you. More than 80 people are believed to have died in yesterday's fiery conclusion to the 51-day siege, 24 of them children. It's my impression that, uh, from what I understand, that it was to the government's advantage that the compound either be demolished or destroyed or burned, uh, because the physical evidence that might have some opportunity of of, uh, disputing uh, their contentions is now destroyed. The FBI, the ATF did some wrong things. I am very, very troubled by the information I received this week Suggesting that pyrotechnic devices may have been used in the early morning hours on April the 19th, 1993 at Waco. Attorney General Janet Reno told the president she wanted to tear gas the building in order to save children she thought were being abused and molested. This is not a case of uh, child abuse, as Janet Reno seems to now, uh, after the fact, say. This is a case of abuse of authority. Now, one of those voices that you heard was a criminal defense attorney named Dick DeGaron. And during the Waco siege, for a while, Dick DeGaron operated as kind of a mediator, kind of a go-between. And he was able to get a couple of dozen people out until he was he was sent away he was sent away by the FBI and that's when the folks stopped stopped coming out and that was a shame because those of us who were paying attention at the time thought that perhaps if he had been allowed to continue, well, he'd gotten a couple of dozen people out. Maybe he could have gotten a few more people out. So a lot of us lamented the fact that he uh, was sent away he actually represented this uh, David Koresh guy during the standoff. And uh, it's a crying shame that he wasn't allowed to continue. That much I know. Now, we heard the compilation put together by Gun Owners of America. There is uh, a new documentary out on Netflix and I'm going to play you their uh, their trailer. It gets kind of rough, just uh, probably not good for the, the children to listen to. Just a little warning there. It was a bunch of people that you could tell really loved each other. It was a very caring environment. What about these people here? They think I'm the son of God. They believed that the end of the world is coming soon and that they were going to be in a battle with the federal government. They were amassing enough armaments to outfit a small army. 
the ultimate goal was to arrest David Koresh and to seize all of the illegal weapons. This is a big damn story. Very ugly situation. Almost a warlike zone going on there. David made such statements as we are ready for war. Okay, y'all been preparing eight months for this. How long do you think we've been preparing? As a negotiator, our goal was always saving as many lives as you can. We have moved in. We've taken that turf. And we're not leaving. Got children in there. Let's work on getting these kids out. They came in and attacked us. It definitely was not us that shot first. You could have dropped a bomb on us and we would not have come out. We'll see one of the holes here. David knew he was dying. If he died, game over. They believed that David Koresh was the key to their eternal salvation. A lot of people have told me that he was trying to groom me. There's no doubt that David Koresh had sex with young kids. That's insanity. I pull the trigger. Leader's dead. Kids are safe. They all come out. It's over. Do you put your trust in the Lord? I am the Lord. Now, it's not too hard to put together overwhelming evidence, as they did. That David Koresh was a really bad guy. Okay? However, there's no indication from the trailer, and I wonder, I wonder, if they will cover the fact that the county sheriff did a two-year investigation. And the guy could have, could have been inappropriate with minors. Could have. But the... Sheriff said he didn't find any evidence after a two-year investigation. That doesn't mean he wasn't doing it. I'm here to tell you, I wouldn't be surprised at all. By the way, his, his real name was Vernon Wayne Howell. That's what his mama named him. Anyway, um, so we got plenty of evidence he's a really bad guy. And if he was doing inappropriate things with kids, then, you know, he should have been in jail. I'm not sure that um, buying a lot of guns is against the law. I mean, look, the liberals want to make it against the law. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is none of this needed to happen. It was well known at the time that this guy liked to go jogging by himself down little two-lane country roads. It was also well-known at the time that he liked to go shop at Sam's Club in Waco by himself. So if the feds really wanted to take him out and avoid any danger to anyone else, including the rest of the men, women, and children. And that compound, 
They could have arrested him anytime they wanted to, anytime he was away from the compound. Now, why do you think they didn't do that? That's a question that hasn't been answered now for 30 years. I mean, you know, except for the obvious answer, right? So, that having been said, no wonder Gun Owners of America is saying that we uh, we want to make sure that the Biden regime is not able to make these agencies more powerful. Alex Mitchell over at New York Post had an article recently called The Clinton Administration's Deadly Mistake that gave rise to Oklahoma City, Columbine, and January 6th. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe, maybe we should take a look at that. It says, early in the morning on April 19, 1993, the FBI sent in tanks to bulldoze the walls of the massive Mount Carmel compound in Waco, Texas. Do you realize that? Yeah, they did. It was a drastic measure to force Branch Davidian leader David Koresh and his people to surrender and face justice after a 51-day standoff that had begun with an illegal weapons investigation and the shooting deaths of six Branch Davidians and four ATF agents. Yeah, by the way, did you know that when they attacked the compound on that Sunday, February 28th, uh, Koresh called 911 and said, hey, he was calling the police. Hey, we're being attacked. Uh, I don't know what's going on, but uh, could you get somebody out here? Anyway, the article says the feds had attempted to get Koresh's followers to surrender in the days and weeks prior with little success. So the FBI who already looked bad after two followers of Koresh snuck through police lines to join the Davidians, began lobbying for approval to use more forceful tactics to take control of the situation. Kevin Cook, author of Waco Rising, David Koresh, the FBI, and the Birth of America's Modern Militias, which came out recently, told the New York Post, When this event started to dominate the news, the pressure escalated on the FBI to end this thing. It made the Clinton administration look terrible. It made the FBI look silly. So the feds pressured then new Attorney General Janet Reno to allow them to use tear gas. Kevin Cook says a tear gas that wasn't allowed in warfare, by the way, and she did. Do you know about that? Now bear with me if you do most of, if you do know most of the stuff I'm sharing with you because I guarantee you some of our uh, younger listeners don't. Cook said by the end of the day, April nineteenth, nineteen ninety three, seventy six people, more than twenty of them young children were dead, making it the deadliest day in FBI history. In his new book, he explores how the government's faulty tactics and departmental pressures led to the fatalities and how Waco became a rallying cry for domestic terrorists and mass shooters. Well, it also became a rallying cry for people who are against mass shooters and domestic terrorists. I I hope he talked about that. Cook said the final tear gas attack backfired. 
the Davidians saw this as the apocalypse unfolding just like David Koresh had told them it would. They stayed inside, and 76 of them died. Now, some of them tried to get out, and we'll, we'll deal with that in a little bit. Falling walls from the tanks actually killed some Davidians. The remainder were trapped inside by a raging fire, the origin of which remains unclear. Oh, I think we kind of have a pretty good idea, the origin. Cook thinks that it was ignited by Koresh's disciples. He said, I can tell you what I believe after a good deal of study. The tear gas did not start the fire. The fire didn't start until noon. This is six hours after the initial movement of the combat vehicles that inserted the tear gas. The FBI had smuggled listening devices into the compound, and there were voices saying, light the fire. One of Koresh's followers said, we don't light it until they come in. Isn't that right? Now, I'm supposed to believe the FBI. I just, I mean, I just saw FBI Director Christopher Wray with Brett Baer on Fox News a few hours ago denying that the FBI put any pressure on Twitter to censor messages the government doesn't like and and ban accounts that were sharing messages the government doesn't like. So, But I'm supposed to believe the FBI in this one. Yeah, okay, right, yeah. According to the writer, several of those who stayed inside did not burn to death either. He said many others killed each other or themselves in what they considered mercy killings. Children were shot by some of the adults. There was one child who was stabbed by someone inside. He added they had been instructed that a baptism of fire may lead directly to the kingdom of heaven. We're supposed to believe that these people, none of whom would have died, if the FBI or ATF had arrested David Koresh jogging along a lonely two-lane country road outside Waco or, you know, going to or from Sam's Club in Waco, wanted to kill each other. Anyway, um, the author also says Koresh had such a hold on the Davidians that he convinced husbands in the Mount Carmel Center that it was his divine right to sleep with their wives or to groom their preteen daughters to get them ready to be wed. I don't doubt that for a minute. I'm not denying this is a really bad guy. I'm just saying I wish that they had arrested him away from the place so everybody would live. But anyway, Cook said instead of talking the people down in many ways, the FBI's aggressive tactics only fed into the fanatic mentality. Okay, I think he's got something there. He said they put loudspeakers outside and played the sounds of animals being butchered. They blared a song from Nancy Sinatra called These Boots Are Made for Walking to try to get them to walk out. Man, that's a great idea. Why, why, why didn't I think of that? He also said that gongs, Gregorian chants, telephones ringing, and messages that David Koresh was misleading the Davidians were also blared by the feds, often as a sleep deprivation tactic. Yeah, that's sure to work. See, I don't think they were doing that early on when Dick DeGaron was able to get a couple of dozen out of them out. Uh, the book's author, this uh, Cook fellow, says it became psychological warfare. These Davidians were quite religious and attempted not to swear or anything like that. They were very upset that some of the law enforcement agents surrounding them were mooning them. 
Agents were also trashing their property, smashing their cars outside to get the message across. They were not fooling around. Even then, President Clinton has since admitted a miscarriage of tactics from the government forces. Really? I didn't know that. In a 2005 address Clinton gave at Hofstra University that is excerpted in the book, Clinton says, I will always regret that. We should have waited them out. It was a mistake, and I'm responsible. And that's not one of those you get an A for effort on. Wow. I'm stunned. I, uh, I'm not used to hearing Billy Jeff own up to things. I, I, I don't know what to do with that. Anyway, the author said, not only did the mishandling of Waco cause many deaths, but it also flared a dark movement in the United States that still burns today. One of the people who came and sold bumper stickers in support of the Davidians during the standoff was Timothy McVeigh, who admired David Koresh. Now, this is according to the author of the book. I have not independently confirmed this. But Cook says he deliberately carried out the Oklahoma City bombings on the two-year anniversary of Waco in 1995 as an act of revenge. Cook added, it's worth noting that the Columbine shooters in 1999 we're first going to use the anniversary of Waco, which was also, of course, the anniversary of Oklahoma City. He also said, in 2000, Alex Jones made Waco a cause and documentary. He would shout no more Wacos as he made his name as a media figure in Texas with the idea that the government had killed the Davidians at Waco. That all leads fairly directly to the rise of today's militias and definitely played a role in January 6th. Okay, that's just absurd. January 6th was a setup, and if this guy is too dense to realize that, then why would I read the book? Now, I got a lot more, because this is a deep dive into the Waco siege. And I think it would behoove us to revisit what Cassandra McDonald wrote five years ago on the 25th anniversary at the Gateway Pundit. And that is coming up as we continue on the Doc Washburn Show on the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the Waco siege. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. Now, I know people who have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online, and if you have any questions, one of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live, 
in the continental USA, redriverauto.com, you will be glad you did. All right, let me tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, fibromyalgia, problems with your blood sugar, perhaps eczema, psoriasis, even migraines? Well, the Arkansas Cervical Center might be able to help you even if you don't live in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas bone to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. I had bad migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away for good. The migraines went away for good, and I'm a happy camper. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, fibromyalgia, problems with your blood sugar, eczema, psoriasis, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009 for a free consultation. They have helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people that we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside central Arkansas, but this sounds like something you want to look into, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the button that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. As you've probably heard by now, our friend Mike Lindell, has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop by simply creating my pillow, the best pillow ever. No, 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 no. Now he's got my pillow 2.0. We never thought that he could take it to the next level. But he discovered a brand new temperature regulating technology for my pillow 2.0 that keeps you comfortable throughout the night. This new fabric technology with MyPillow 2.0 helps regulate your body temperature through the night by creating a lower surface temperature for a more restful night's sleep. You know, your core body temperature plays a big role in how well you sleep. MyPillow 2.0 has been developed to provide a cool surface, and it's engineered for comfort. Because it's a fiber, not a finish, it'll last the life of the fabric. My Pillow 2.0 is available in four loft levels. It's machine washable and dryable. There's a 10-year warranty on it with a 60-day money-back guarantee. And, of course, it's made right here in the good old USA. And a special offer for my listeners, My Pillow 2.0 is now available on a two-for-one basis just by using the promo code DWS. And don't forget about those wonderful Giza Dreams Sheets. The first night you sleep on them, you'll never want to sleep on anything else again. Mike is offering a special offer for my listeners for the Giza Dreams sheets. Get a set of them for as low as $29.98 just by using promo code DWS. As a matter of fact, in this economy, instead of buying a new bed, 
Rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles, like plush, waffle, or gossamer, for as low as $29.98. Get huge discounts on duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. But use that promo code DWS and you get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding, including MyPillow 2.0 and the Giza Dreams sheets. And let me tell you about my new My Slippers moccasins. I had no idea that moccasins could feel this good. Right now, save up to $90 on My Slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins marked down to just $49.98 just by using promo code DWS. Now remember, that promo code does not stand for washed-up Democrat politician Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, no, no. It stands for Doc Washburn Show, MyPillow.com and MyStore.com, where Mike sells all kinds of stuff. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. All right, let me take you to Cassandra McDonald over at the Gateway Pundit. And she tweeted out today, in honor of the anniversary of the start of the 51-day standoff, which concluded with terrorists from the ATF killing American citizens, including 25 children in Waco, here's my interview with a survivor and one of the FBI negotiators. And she links to the interview from five years ago at the Gateway Pundit. But on Twitter, she says, I spoke to both David Thibodeau and Gary Nosner separately to get their perspectives from opposite sides of this dark spot in American history. She says Thibodeau, for his part, believes that the government wanted people to die, even going so far as to shoot people who tried to escape from the back of the building. I bet you haven't heard that anywhere else, have you? All right, let's check this out. The article is from March 3rd, 2018. It's called Never Forget Interviews with Waco Survivor David Thibodeau and FBI Negotiator Gary Nosner Paint Different Pictures of Tragic Event. She says, Wednesday, which was February 28th, 2018, marked the 25th anniversary of the start of the infamous 51-day standoff near Waco, Texas, between the FBI, ATF, and a religious group called the Branch Davidians, the horrific conclusion of which left 76 people dead, including 25 children. The Gateway Pundit interviewed two people who were each intimately involved with the 1993 siege. One of the men was with law enforcement on the outside. The other was a survivor who viewed it from the inside. She says, The deadly assault on David Koresh's Branch Davidian compound took place from February 28th through April 19th, 1993, over suspected weapons violations. The ATF had attempted to raid the compound, and a gun battle ensued, leaving four government agents and six Branch Davidians dead. For the next 50 days, the government would use psychological warfare, such as playing the sounds of animals being slaughtered until ultimately the compound was burned 
to the ground with nearly everyone still inside. It is believed by many that the raid was staged as a success story to make up for the FBI and ATF's failings at Ruby Ridge, an 11-day standoff in Idaho in the summer of 1992, where the agencies had botched an arrest of a man named Randy Weaver and killed his 14-year-old child uh, and the child's mother while she was holding a 10-month-old baby. Critics of the tactics used by the FBI and ATF in Waco often point to the fact that Koresh would frequently travel into town alone and would have been easy enough to arrest without incident, but it would have been less flashy for the cameras. Hey, Cassandra, stop stealing my lines. I'm just kidding. Instead of a success story, the nation watched in horror as weapons of war were used on American civilians and massive amounts of tear gas was lobbed into the compound before being set ablaze, though there is disagreement about who set the actual fire. Janet Reno claimed at the time that her reason for approving the final gas attack was that the FBI had told her Koresh was sexually abusing children and beating babies during the standoff. The FBI later denied that there was any evidence of this. Okay, so who was lying, the FBI or Janet Reno? Because we know they both did. Anyway, she says, to mark the historic date, the Paramount Network concluded their breathtaking six-part miniseries. The show angered critics for their sympathetic portrayal of the group as complex human beings instead of the crazed religious cult members that the government sought to portray them as at the time. While the entire series was jaw-dropping, one quiet moment in the finale really captured my attention. The real David Thibodeau, who escaped from the fire on that fateful day, and FBI negotiator Gary Nosner, who had fought tirelessly to end the standoff without violence, appeared together at the end of the Paramount series. They had reunited for the first time to both work as advisors on Paramount's retelling, and they made brief cameos during the final episode. The Gateway, the Gateway Pundit spoke to both Thibodeau and Nosner separately to get their opinions on the show as well as their perspectives from opposite sides on this dark spot in American history. Though there is mutual respect between the two men, their views on what happened on that final day stand in stark opposition, especially when it comes to who started the fire and why none of the children made it out of the inferno. While watching the series, Nosner, the FBI's lead negotiator, comes across as the compassionate figure on the law enforcement side who likely could have saved many lives if he had been given the opportunity to do his job during the standoff. His desire to treat the Davidians with respect and dignity to come to a peaceful conclusion appeared to be a significant and tragic part of his early removal from his position as the FBI's lead negotiator, which occurred prior to the day of the final assault. Well, I guess it was an early removal that occurred a long time prior to the day of the final assault. 
So while Nosner was thankful to the writers of the Paramount series for portraying him so heroically, he feels as though his character should represent the entire team that he worked with, not just himself. His humble attitude was entirely what one would expect after having watched the dramatic series representation of his character. He said, they sort of made me the hero, so that's very nice. They probably gave me more credit than I deserve, but it was certainly nice to be depicted that way. That's what he said after I pointed out that his character appeared to be one of the favorites of viewers who commented on the series on social media, along with Thibodeau. He said, I like to think that my character really represented a much larger negotiation team. There's a team of six to eight negotiators per shift, and a dramatic series doesn't really lend itself to that sort of depiction. Hopefully, what my character was doing will be understood by many to be what the whole team accomplished. Likewise, Thibodeau noticed many things that happened to him in the series actually happened to other people. He was also enduringly humble, saying that the writers may have made him look better than he really was. He said, my book is more accurate on what really happened to me and what I saw Other people did things in the series that they attributed to my character, like burying the body out front due to time constraints and the need to have fewer characters do more things. My story wasn't really about me. It's about all those people that don't have any voices anymore because they were wiped out by the government and so demonized that most people didn't even really care that they were wiped out by the government. Thibodeau explained that at the time, people seemed to justify the horrors of what happened dismissing the government wrongdoing by saying things like, oh, too bad, those poor religious fanatics. Well, what can you do? He said that he sat on his story for 25 years knowing that he had written a book detailing what he went through, but that it would never be read by enough people. He said, it's hard to talk about with every single individual you run into, but I'm glad that more people are realizing who the people were on Mount Carmel, the Davidian compound. He said, that's what I cared about. I wanted people to understand who Serenity was and Michelle and get to know them. There's still not enough. There's a lot of people who still got missed. As far as the retelling of the events overall, Nosner said that the chronology was extremely accurate, though he had some issues with how favorably Koresh was portrayed. He explained... What they were really trying to do was show that there were good and bad decisions and good and bad people both on the outside looking in and on the inside looking out. In an effort to be balanced, I think they, to some extent, under-demonized David Koresh. I think in real life he was a darker, more sinister, and more self-serving character than was depicted in the Paramount series. Wow. Okay, I didn't expect that from a guy who was there at the compound and somehow by the grace of God got out. I would have expected him to have, you know, still had some kind of warm feelings or delusions about this Koresh guy. So that that's strong right there. Nostner explained that the show was trying to show how charismatic Koresh was and how that would lead people to be drawn to him but that there was more manipulation at play 
than the Paramount series actually depicted. That's fascinating. One area where Nosner and Thibodeau absolutely do not agree is on who started the fires. On the show, one of the final moments included a reenactment of a 1993 broadcast from a DJ for a radio station called KGBS, Ron Engelman, in which he recounted other fires that were started through use of pyrotechnic CS gas deployment. While not expressly stating that law enforcement started the fire, he faulted them for not having the fire department on hand. You know, that's a good point because they sure didn't. Okay, more on the disagreements between the initial FBI lead negotiator and one of the few guys that got out alive on the day of the inferno, April 19th, 1993, coming up straight ahead on the Doc Washburn Show. All right, AT&T lost a lot of money in the stock market recently. Billions. I think it might be because the satellite outfit they own, DirecTV, recently got rid of Newsmax. I mean, they already got rid of One American News last year. They recently got rid of Newsmax. I think a lot of people said, okay, we're done. We're done with DirecTV. We're done with AT&T. Look, if you want to leave one of the big liberal cell phone carriers, whether it's AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, you want to go with a cell phone carrier that fits your worldview, i got the perfect solution for you. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important for us to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. And if you're like me, you're going to be saving a lot of money. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. PatriotMobile.com. The great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. So, have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? I got five profound benefits of investing in precious metals. Number one, it's a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, Say with me two words, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. That means 
They're an asset, commodity, or currency that maintains their value without depreciating over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. So we're honored to join forces with Beverly Hills Precious Metals and its owner, Andrew Sorcini. Andrew has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Andrew Sorcini and his team at Beverly Hills Precious Metals know the gold and silver business inside and out. After many years in the markets and collecting precious metals privately, Andrew opened Beverly Hills Precious Metals in 2010 to bring precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Now, we found out about Andrew Sorcini and Beverly Hills Precious Metals from our friend General Michael Flynn, and we're sure glad we did. By the way, Beverly Hills Precious Metals recently came out with a General Mike Flynn silver coin, and it is selling like hotcakes. Andrew's a frequent guest on conservative podcasts. Beverly Hills Precious Metals is our gold buyer of choice. To learn more about Andrew and his team, go to bh-pm.com. Stands for Beverly Hills and Precious Metals. If you can't remember that, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. It's the first thing that comes up. Let them know Doc Washburn sent you. We're honored to be able to tell you about Beverly Hills Precious Metals in an effort to help you in your attempts to protect your family's finances, wealth, and investments. bh-pm.com or just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Now, I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. Now, we all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic. While so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close, the wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? Well, what can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com. It's helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patriot influencers have come on board recently. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big, woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We are done with a woke, globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And now, an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the mountains of Montana, near the Yellowstone, this beef is known as never, ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. 
This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shopped anywhere else in the world. Switch to America.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to switchtoamerica.com when it asks how you heard about us. Click on my name, Doc Washburn. Plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Switch to America.com. Okay, so Cassandra McDonald, the Gateway Pundit, five years ago, interviewing two different guys, one of whom was inside the Mount Carmel compound outside of Waco, a guy named David Thibodeau, and the other whom was the original FBI chief negotiator, a guy named Gary Nosner. And they got along pretty well, but they really disagreed about who started the fire on day 51, that fateful day, April 19th, 1993. So I think we left off, as far as the retelling of the events overall, Nosner said that the chronology was extremely accurate on the Paramount series, though he had some issues with how favorably Koresh was portrayed. Oh, you know what? I goofed up. I said before the break that Thibodeau had said that. It was Nosner that said it. My mistake. I apologize. I'd like to revise and amend my remarks. Anyway, where we did leave off was the disagreement between the two. Cassandra McDonald says, it's important to note that if this gas had been used on terrorists, it would have been it would have been considered a war crime. Did you know that? A war crime. When used on innocent American men, women, and children under Janet Reno's lead, it was perfectly acceptable, and no one was ever held accountable. Talking about the pyrotechnic CS gas deployment. Nosner was displeased with this scene as he firmly believes that Koresh had given the order for the fires to be set. Nosner said, I appreciate what they're trying to do, but the investigation pretty solidly established that the Branch Davidians actually started the fire. Even one of the nine survivors came out and said that other Davidians were starting the fire. I don't know what else people need to put that one in the bank. Thibodeau adamantly disagrees. He says, I have always said that nobody inside there started the fire. Another one of the surviving members, 72-year-old Clive Doyle, told CNN in 2018, let's say the government created circumstances that led to the fire, though he did not say which side actually lit the blaze. But FBI former chief negotiator Gary Nosner said, I think that is a far more defensible position. You can say that the fire would not have been initiated that day had the FBI not put in the gas. 
But the show left the question a bit murkier. There are recordings from inside that prove that David Koresh ordered the fires. I wish they had shown that as clear as it is. Now, during the trial of 11 surviving Branch Davidians who were charged with conspiracy and murder for the deaths of the four federal agents on the first day of the siege, it was revealed that listening devices had been placed inside the Branch Davidian compound. Matthew Gravel of the FBI, the agent who monitored the devices, testified that batteries lasted about 12 hours and that the last operating device was placed inside the compound at 7.28 p.m. on April 18th, according to a 1994 report from the New York Times. Thibodeau countered Nosner's stance by arguing that the audio was six hours earlier, even if it wasn't tampered with, which I'm sure it was. It was at 6 a.m. If Dave was telling people to start the fire at 6 a.m., how come it didn't start until six hours later? doesn't make sense, and I just don't trust the government with the evidence. Thibodeau also said, I feel for Gary in a sense because I think he really tried to do the right thing as far as what he could do. I think there are a lot of FBI agents who have no idea what really happened. Many that were on the ground did not even know that they had used pyrotechnic devices and things like that. I think it was probably only a few at the top who knew what was truly going on. Thibodeau explained that when you're using tanks to make big holes in the building like a fire flue, you should kind of expect that the building is going to burn. They did everything in their power to make that place go up quickly. That's what the holes were about. Well, I don't know that much about pyrotechnics, but I watched them do it. And, um, you know, I always thought that the feds were burning the people. When asked about why law enforcement had failed to have the fire department on standby in case of a fire, as mentioned by Engelman's character on the series and during an actual broadcast in 1993, former FBI chief negotiator Gary Nosner argued that it seems like a good point. He cites a few cases where fires have started. What he doesn't say is that there are thousands of cases where gas didn't start a fire. It's cherry-picking to validate what you're talking about. In reality, the FBI fired pyrotechnic gas dispersal cartridges at the cement structure in the middle of the compound, and they all bounced off the wall. That happened at 8 o'clock in the morning. The fire didn't start until noon, and there were no, there was no other pyrotechnic stuff involved. Thibodeau, for his part, believes the government wanted people to die, even going so far as to shoot people who tried to escape from the back of the building. He explained, There was a plane that was flying above Mount Carmel on the day of the fire. It was going in a circle. It was an FBI plane that, that had infrared technology which means that the video captured heat. It looks like it's black and white, but wherever there is heat, it is white. Wherever it's cool, it's dark or black. The hotter it is, the whiter it is. Just before the fire, there are a couple of places where you see two flashes go off that we believe are pyrotechnic flashbangs. It happens in the two different areas of the building where the fires begin. 
He said, the other thing you see is that while the fire is raging, there are two tanks, and next to them you see these repeated bright flashes. Yes, I remember hearing about this, but I digress. All the experts who spoke to the Waco Rules of Engagement documentary makers believe that to be fully automatic weapon fire. The video shows several places where you can see people shooting into the building. It's at the back of the building where the media cameras were not allowed to be. The government claimed that it was sunlight reflections and not fully automatic weapon fire. But that's crazy. A four-year-old could watch that video and tell you what it was. When asked if he saw or heard the gunfire when he's trying to escape, Thibodeau said he did not. Wow. He recalled, I didn't hear it. That's what was so surprising when I first saw that video. Of course, you know, fire is incredibly loud, and there were tanks and the speaker systems going on. There were times that people would suggest to me that some who tried to escape were shot, and I would argue and say, no, that never happened. You know, I got out. But it always bothered me why nobody in the back, not even one person, ever got out. Then I started reading the autopsy reports. There were 13 different autopsy reports that I read which said that people died from bullet wounds to the center of their heads and or the center of their chests. That's not how you kill yourself. You don't put a gun to your chest and pull the trigger. And most people don't put the gun up to the center of their forehead. They put the gun in their mouths or under their chin and pull the trigger. Thibodeau added, that always bothered me. Now, an expert retained by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel had testified that many of the gunshot wounds support self-destruction either by overt suicide, consensual execution, suicide by proxy, or less likely forced execution. Survivors have long maintained that there was no suicide plan. Thibodeau's confusion turned to outrage while doing his, docu- while doing his interview for the documentary Waco Rules of Engagement. Thibodeau was, inter- was invited to view the infrared footage that was being cut for the film. He said, I saw it. They showed me the weapons fire, and I was blown away. I was giving talks all over the country about Waco at this point, so I decided to include the footage in my speech before a large audience. The first time I did, I started yelling, You see that? They're shooting them. They're shooting them. I was losing control of myself in front of all these people. After the speech, Thibodeau was signing books, and an audience member approached him and noted he seemed very angry. Realizing the person was correct, he decided to stop giving public speeches. Thibodeau said, I was doing just fine talking about Waco and the people there until I saw the infrared video. It triggered an anger in me that has never gone away. I can control it a lot better now, but I had to stop talking publicly because I realized I had some form of PTSD. So Cassandra McDonald, Gateway Pundit, says, I noted that most people would likely understand as his anger is righteous and justified. He agreed, I think so. When asked if he's kept in touch with any survivors other than working with Thibodeau on the Paramount show, former FBI chief negotiator Gary Nosner said that he met two at a 20th anniversary event in 2013, Clive Doyle and Sheila Martin. He said, I took the step to cross the room 
and say how sorry I was for the loss of their families. I thought it was the right thing to do. I had a brief conversation with them both, certainly nothing in depth. I've always said that a lot of the people inside made some really bad choices, but that doesn't mean that the FBI didn't also make bad decisions. It's a complex issue. In the past, people would say that the people inside were nuts and deserved what they got, or the FBI was bad and wanted to kill those people. I don't think either of those polarized positions is a very fair assessment of the complexity of the whole thing. Now, Martin left four of her children inside with their father when she exited the compound during the siege prior to the day of the fire. Unfortunately, she's still a believer of Koresh's teachings, and she thinks that the dead are simply waiting to be transported to a great new kingdom and that she will one day see her children again. Oh, my goodness. Nosner said on the day of the fire, nine people came out. Not a single one of them brought a child. One of them brought a puppy out, but nobody brought a kid out. He said, I'm terribly sorry for what happened to everyone in there, but I can only tell you, if I had been in there with my child, I would have either have brought them out or stayed in there and died with them. There's no way I would not have gotten my child out. Now, this specific line about the survivors is one that David Thibodeau is bothered by the most, having heard it many times over the years. He contends that the children were all in the back of the building and that law enforcement had been shooting at those who attempted to escape from that side. Clearly upset, Thibodeau said, it makes me crazy when they say that. And here's why. If you're in the back of the building where all the kids are and you didn't survive, because people are shooting you. How are you supposed to bring children out? It's the worst. They were shooting people where they knew the children are, and then they asked publicly why people weren't bringing children out. It's asinine. The adults didn't bring children out because you were shooting them down. They're still blaming survivors for not doing the right thing when they were shooting at them. It's outrageous to say that about people. Thibodeau noted that the same line was used in the recent A&E documentary, again, 2018, and that he was frustrated because there isn't a way to respond once something like that is out there. He said they're all about the propaganda and what the government wants them to say. What the government did is so bad that nobody wants to admit they did it. It just isn't something you want to think of the American government having done. Speaking on the recent uptick in anti-government sentiments, the Gateway Pundit asked Thibodeau if he had any concerns during the showdown at the Bundy Ranch, or when an armed militia seized the headquarters of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, of a potential for there to be another incident like Waco. Thibodeau said, I always do. I always worry about it. I think the FBI has learned a lot from Waco, and they don't want to repeat it. But they shouldn't have had to learn those lessons. It should have been common sense. Former FBI negotiator Nosner, when asked the same question, asserted that he didn't He didn't think so because there's a significant difference between the anti-federal government crowd and religious groups. He said, I didn't view the Bundys and their supporters as religiously motivated or having any end times revelations or suicidal nature. I certainly thought that there could be some significant bloodshed I mean, there was some, but it was minimal. 
I've dealt with a lot of these anti-government types before, and they're very different than the religious fanatics. During a recent interview, again, this is five years ago, 2018, with Megyn Kelly, Nosner stated he does not believe people should distrust their government over incidents like what happened at Waco. He added that the resurgence in negative feelings about the government are unfounded as there was both good and bad on both sides of the incident. Really? Well, let's listen to that, shall we? It's about five minutes long. Oh, and coming up, coming up, how are two military names you might have heard of, Wesley Clark and Jerry Boykin, involved in Waco? I'll tell you, 30 years later. Well, as I said, I'm with the FBI, not the ATF. We're in charge of this now. Isn't that like getting in a fight with a neighbor boy and he whoops you? And his big brother comes over to investigate? No, it's not like that at all. Tell me, Gary. You can come kill us all. Mm. That was from the new TV miniseries, Waco, airing on Paramount Network. It is based partially on the book's Stalling for Time by Gary Nessner, who was portrayed right there, you saw. Um, and also, Waco, a survivor's guide by David Thibodeau. Gary and David are back with us now. Um, David, you were inside the compound for those entire 51 days. You were close with David Koresh. Describe what the people were like and what those t- that time period was like. The 51-day yeah. time period? Well, that was very much chaotic because, you know, a, a different lifestyle than what we had been used to. Kind of two MREs a day, meals ready to eat, and uh, the water was, was uh, rationed as well. Um, there was a lot of... It was, it was an exciting, obviously an exciting time, but watching daily the press conferences there would always be the fbi was in control totally of the information that the world got Mm -hmm. and so when you're not able to kind of respond to things on a daily basis that people are saying about you becomes very frustrating especially the communication breakdown uh, between david crash steve schneider and and the fbi negotiators lieutenant steve schneider they when you see the videotapes because they were taking videotapes inside uh the compound Mm -hmm. the the davidians were and it's these lovely people talking with their kids and holding little ones and you know they're calm and they seem peaceful um of course the story on the other side is that they weren't that they had killed atf agents and that they had an arsenal in there including explosives which is what they claimed made the atf interested them in the first place gary well you know i wouldn't characterize them as not being some good people who were there to follow david koresh they believed in him but yes they've been engaged in some illegal activity which prompted uh uh, the ATF to raid the building, and then now all of a sudden we have to show up as the FBI, and I'm running the negotiations, and there's uh, four people killed on the ATF, four, five, six uh, Davidians, many wounded. It's a pretty difficult situation to now say, let's all be friends and, and chat nice. How many did you get out? How many? We got 30, my negotiation team got 35 people out, including 21 children, over the first half of the 51-day siege. And then you were kind of removed from the picture because you had a difference of opinion on how it should go? Yeah, I mean, in addition to the conflict inside the compound, as as David Thibodeau here just just referred, there was conflict within the FBI. There was 
the negotiation team that wanted to basically engage in dialogue and convince them to come out to share with the world what they thought about things. And there was a part of the FBI that wanted to force them out to tighten the noose, as it were, to exert increasing amounts of pressure. And those two things were in, in contrast and contradiction and created a lot of problems for us. And uh, it, it did not go the way you wanted it to. Not at all. Not another hostage came out after Gary was removed. They weren't really hostages, though, I have to tell you that. We yeah, never right. They weren't. Way. They were they followers. Were, they wanted to be there, yeah. They wanted to be there. So, And, and you wanted to be there. Well, you, and the other thing about the hostage negotiation team, they went through 23 negotiators during the, I believe that's the correct number, during the course of the 51-day siege. That was very frustrating for David. I mean, I think he really liked like Gary, I know there was a couple of the negotiators they had a, a report with, and it just seems like the tactical commanders would take those people yeah. off. And one of the many reasons the feds took there. a hit. I'll give you the last word on the cultural impact of Waco and why people should care. Waco has uh, had resonance with um, folks that largely believe that the government has overstepped in some of these areas. It certainly was the motivation for Timothy McVeigh. Um, after the Oklahoma City bombing, there seemed to be a significant drop in recruitment uh, in the anti-government movement, realizing that um, they may think the idea is nice, but when you kill all these children in a federal building, that's not what people signed up for. But now with current events, we've had a resurgence um, in folks that have a very strong negative uh, feeling about the government. And for me, a lot of that's unfounded. This is a complex situation. It's, it's one that should not just demonize the Davidians or the FBI. There's good and bad on both sides. And that's what's great about this TV show. It really gives you a look that no one's seen before about that. Well said. Thank you both. Can I have one point there? Sure, quickly. I just don't believe that the police should be militarized. That we should have a military and we should have a police force. The police should be there to protect and serve and not be militarized, coming to people's homes with tanks. David is now living in Maine um, and is... I said, are you still at Branch Davidian? He said, I never realized I was one. I was living with my friend David in a compound, uh, and things went south. Thank you both so much for being here. Waco premieres this Wednesday on Paramount Network. We'll be right back. And again, that was from five years ago for the uh, very short amount of time that Megan Kelly was actually anchoring the, uh, the third hour of the Today Show. Very short amount of time, but that's a whole other show. So, you know, Thibodeau's words kind of ring in our ears, don't they? He said he doesn't believe the police should be militarized and showing up to people's homes with tanks. Do you know why they did? I'll get to that in a moment. The Gateway Pundit asked Nessner for his response to Thibodeau's stance. He said, well... I think I would agree with Thibodeau to an extent. Yes, I would agree that the police have become somewhat militarized. But that is because we allow people to purchase some pretty powerful weapons here in America. In the series, it showed those tanks with their gun barrels on. The gun barrels had been removed at Waco. Nobody was pointing tank barrels at the Davidians. They were merely places for the FBI tactical people to be inside and protect themselves from shots. They did get used to crush cars and do all sorts of inappropriate things, but the intent was not to use them as a weapon per se. He said, but I would agree with the philosophy that there has to be a clear distinction between what the military does and what law enforcement does that to some extent has become a little murky. Oh, has it ever. But I digress. When asked if he agreed with Nestor's position, that he stated in the Kelly interview, 
Thibodeau passionately stated he does not. Cassandra McDonald says, do you think that people are wrong to distrust the government? Thibodeau says, of course not. They've been lying to you forever. Ever since Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, they've lied to you. They've hidden things from you. They've made sure that you're looking in the wrong place to get facts about what they have done. They want you to believe what they say, and they love to lie. They need to cover their rear ends because they screw up all the time. It's this arrogance. Nobody in the government can just admit that they're wrong, even at the cost of other people's lives. Thibodeau added, if you don't distrust your government, you're an idiot. And he said, they don't care about you. They only care about getting voted back into office. It's outrageous. I had an advanced education with Waco. I wish I could say it's getting better, but it's the opposite, really. It's getting worse. So Cassandra McDonald, the Gateway Pundit, helpfully adds, for more information about the incident and each man's own story, you can check out Waco, a survivor's story by David Thibodeau, and Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator by Gary Nussner. Article by Cassandra McDonald, Gateway Pundit, March 3, 2018, entitled Never Forget, Interviews with Waco Survivor David Thibodeau and FBI Negotiator Gary Nussner paint different pictures of tragic event. Okay, now let's deal with this. How is it that law enforcement was allowed to use military tanks? What on earth was the deal with that? Counterpunch. Jeffrey St. Clair and Alexander Coburn. It's an article from uh, 2003, but it was originally published in June of 1999. So just six years after. Jeffrey St. Clair is editor of Counterpunch. And Alexander Coburn, I think he used to uh, write for the New York Times. Anyway, they wrote this together. It's called Wesley Clark and Waco. Uh, Is that a surprise to you? That there is a Wesley Clark connection to Waco? Because there is. Let's take a look at it. February 28th, 1993, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms launched its disastrous and lethal raid on the Branch Civilian Compound outside Waco, Texas, even before the raid. Members of the U.S. Armed Forces, many of them in civilian dress, were already around the compound. In the wake of the February 28th debacle, Texas Governor Ann Richards asked to consult with knowledgeable military personnel Her request went to the U.S. Army base at Fort Hood, where the commanding officer of the U.S. Army's III Corps referred to the Cavalry Division of the III Corps, whose commander at the time was Wesley Clark. Now, Wesley Clark went on to bigger and better things after that. Subsequent congressional inquiry records that Richards met with Wesley Clark's number two, the assistant division commander, who advised her on military equipment that might be used in a subsequent raid. 
Clark's man at Governor Richards' request, or was like to call her in Texas 30 years ago, Ma Richards, also met with the head of the Texas National Guard. Two senior Army officers subsequently traveled to a crucial April 14th meeting in Washington, D.C. with Attorney General Janet Reno and Justice Department and FBI officials in which the impending April 19th attack on the compound was reviewed. The 186-page investigation into the activities of federal law enforcement agencies toward the Branch Davidians prepared by the Committee on Government Reform and Oversight and lodged in 1996 does not name these two officers and at deadline counterpunch has so far been unable to unearth them. One of these officers had reconnoitered the Branch Davidian compound a day earlier on April 13th. During the Justice Department meeting, one of the officers told Reno that if the military had been called in to end a barricade situation as part of military operation in a foreign country, it would focus its efforts on taking out the leader of the operation. Ultimately, tanks from Fort Hood were used in the final catastrophic assault on the Branch Davidian compound on April 19, 1993. Certainly, the Waco onslaught bears characteristics typical of General Wesley Clark. The eagerness to take out the leader reminds one of the Clark-ordered bombing of Milosevic's private residence in Serbia. The utter disregard for the lives of innocent men, women, and children. The arrogant miscalculations about the effects of force. Disregard for law, whether the Posse Comitatus Act, governing military actions within the United States or abroad, the purview of the Nuremberg Laws and war crimes, and attacks on civilians. Amid NATO military supremo Wesley Clark's onslaught on the civilians of Serbia, the question arose, did Clark hone his civilian killing skills a few years earlier at Waco, where the FBI oversaw the largest single spasm of slaughter of civilians by law enforcement in U.S. history, when nearly 100 Branch Davidians died amid an assault by tanks, flamethrowers, and snipers? The tanks were from Fort Hood, where Wesley Clark was in early 1993, commander of the Cavalry Division of the U.S. Army's Three Corps. In our last issue, we cited a congressional report commissioned in the aftermath of Waco, which described how Texas Governor Ann Richards had consulted with Clark's number 2 at Fort Hood Then on April 14th, there was a summit at the Justice Department of Washington where Attorney General Janet Reno, top Justice Department and FBI officials, and two unnamed senior Army officers reviewed the final assault plan scheduled for April 19th. The two two Army officers at the Justice Department that day were Colonel Jerry Boykin and his superior, General Peter J. Schumacher, the head of Special Forces at Fort Bragg. Though Clark, who had served the Schumacher, was not directly involved in the onslaught on the Branch Davidians, the role of the U.S. Army in that affair throws into harsh relief the way prohibitions against the use of the U.S. military for civilian law enforcement can be swiftly bypassed. Boykin and Schumacher were present because the Army's Fort Bragg-based Combat Applications Group, popularly known as Delta Force, had been enlisted as part of the assault team 
on the Branch Davidian compound. It appears that President Clinton has signed a waiver of the Posse Comitatus Act, with the precedent being Ronald Reagan's revocation of the act in 1987, allowing Delta Force to be involved in suppressing a prison riot in Atlanta. The role of the Delta Force, the identity of the two Army officers, the revocation of Posse Comitatus, all form part of the disclosures of a forthcoming documentary film, Waco, A New Revelation. Now, this would have come out in 99 or 2000. Put together by part of the team that produced an earlier excellent film called Waco, Rules of Engagement. By the way, I I strongly advise you look at Waco, Rules of Engagement. It's probably on YouTube. That would be my guess. Following our questions about Wesley Clark's possible involvement at Waco, producer-slash-researcher Mike McNulty called us with some details of his new documentary, directed by Jason Van Fleet, and due to be released in July. Okay, that would be July 1999. After energetic use of Freedom of Information Act inquiries, plus research in three repositories in Texas, holding evidence from the Waco Inferno, plus other extensive investigations, McNulty and his team have put together an explosive file. First of all, 28 videotapes from the repositories show that in the final onslaught on the Waco compound were members of the U.S. military in special assault gear and with name tags obscured. As noted above, Bill Clinton's revocation of the Posse Comitatus Act made this presence legal. McNulty isolates Vince Foster as the White House point man for the Waco operation. Oh, Nelly! Oh, my goodness, Vince Foster is in the middle of this. Oh, my. Maybe he did kill himself. Uh, No, no, not at the park, not where they found the body. But I'm just saying. McNulty cites Foster's widow as saying that the depression that prompted the White House lawyer's death was fueled by horror at the carnage at Waco for which the White House had given the ultimate green light. Vince Foster was writing a report about the Waco catastrophe when he died. Ah, then maybe he didn't kill himself because they didn't want the report to come out. McNulty says that some documents about Foster and Waco were among those removed from his office after his death, later to surface in a White House storeroom sheltering archives of the First Lady. McNulty says the film discloses how the federal assault team placed explosives on top of a compound bunker where the feds believed the Branch Davidian leaders might flee. Material evidence collected by McNulty shows that the FBI-slash-Delta Assault Force bombarded the the compound with pyrophoric, in other words, fire-causing projectiles. Erosion of Posse Comitatus Act prohibitions on the involvement of the U.S. military and law enforcement here is particularly sinister. The congressional report on Waco showed that some Army officers were extremely disturbed a request for military assistance by the FBI, and there were some acrimonious exchanges at the time. The drug war, needless to say, 
has been a prime solvent in the process of erosion. One factor is the malign cross-fertilization occurring when these so-called elite units, the Army's Combat Application Group, the FBI's Hostage Rescue Team, the Navy's SEALs all train together along with SWAT teams from police forces across the country. Thousands of law enforcement officers have now cut their teeth on the homicidal commando techniques most flagrantly displayed by the killers assembled by assembled in the British SAS, members of which were also present at the Waco siege. The Rambo mindset now saturates law enforcement and even the Rangers and Fish and Game Departments now pack heat. Both Counterpunch editors have had the experience of being asked to down their fly rods and produce ID by young Fish and Game Rangers with semi-automatics on their hips. Oh my goodness, and that's it. That's it. Wow, um, that is uh, an alarming article. September 17, 2003, in Counterpunch, but originally published June of 1999, by Jeffrey St. Clair and Alexander Coburn, called Wesley Clark and Waco. Counterpunch.org. Wesley Clark and Waco. You know, one of the ironies, one of the real ironies. So there was a... Um, there was a shooting in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, a few years ago. It's a terrorist attack, actually. Uh, July 16, 2015, Mohammed Youssef Abdulaziz opened fire on two military installations in Chattanooga. He first committed a drive-by shooting at a recruiting center, then traveled to a U.S. Navy Reserve Center and continued firing where he was finally killed by a police in a gunfight. But four Marines died on the spot. A Navy sailor, a Marine recruiter, and a police officer were wounded. The sailor died from his injuries two days later. So at that point, a lot of us were saying that Service members need to be able to protect and defend themselves and the folks around them with at least sidearms when they are on duty. You know, what, uh, what more should it take, right? You got Fort Hood, people getting mowed down because they weren't allowed to have sidearms. We got the recruiters there. You know, I mean, there, there was a shooting some years back at a recruiting center in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I did uh, local talk radio. You got another recruiting center and a Naval Reserve Center there in Chattanooga, and those people were sitting ducks. Sitting ducks. So somehow or another, somebody uh, in the media was able to ask Wesley Clark what he thought about the idea of allowing 
service members to carry sidearms, you know, so they wouldn't be sitting ducks. You'll never believe what Wesley Clark said. He said that would violate posse comitatus, and instead we just need to encourage Muslim moms and dads to pay better attention to who their young men might be associating with online. No, no. Seriously. Let the record reflect that when Wesley Clark said that service members should not be allowed to carry weapons to be able to protect and defend themselves, after the 2015 Chattanooga shootings, this was already, already, after both Fort Hood shootings, which you would think he would be aware of, you know, since he used to be stationed there. It was already after the Little Rock recruiting office shooting in 2009, January, uh, June 1st. For that matter, it was already after the Boston bombing. Now, you may say, Doc, what a Boston bombing, there was no shooting there. Well, they shot a cop after the bombing. But, see, he's encouraging people in the Muslim community to do something about it. Well, let me just tell you something. For days, law enforcement in the Boston area were blanketing social media. They were blanketing television with mugshots of these two guys. Please, if you know who these people are, tell us. Not a peep out of the mosque they attended on a daily, uh, on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. Now, after they were, after they were taken in, after they were arrested, well, they arrested one. The other one didn't make it because his brother drove over him in an SUV. His brother killed him. But after the one was arrested and the other was dead, then. The people in the mosque are like, "Oh yeah, they, um, we, we, yeah, we have seen them in in, in the mosque. Yeah, they were uh, they were here, but they're they're a little off, you know. They, they, they. But nobody identified them before. They are apprehended. Wesley Clark. See, he he he's got security. He doesn't have to worry. He but he doesn't want service members to have security, to be able to." Uh, carry sidearms on the base at a recruiting center. I just think he's a bad guy, okay? Sue me. I just uh, I just think he's a bad guy. I disagree with him. And it's a life and death kind of matter of disagreeing, you know? It's not one of these, well, we can still be friends. I, uh, no. No. When I sit here and think, hey, could Wesley Clark have put his foot down and uh, prevented the use of uh, military items at the Branch Civilian Compound, which, of course, okay, Clinton, Clinton waived posse comitatus. Uh, maybe couldn't have. Maybe, maybe Clinton would have fired him then instead of a few years later out of his position in the Baltic War. Anyway, it's a mess. 
And I felt like it was my duty to share it with you. Just as it is now my duty to say, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto. Red River Auto is a big old car dealer in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. So, a tweet of the day. Greg Price has it. He has a clip from the Fox News interview that Brett Baer did with FBI Director Chris Ray. And Greg Price says FBI Director Chris Ray defends the FBI sending 30 agents to arrest pro life activist Mark Houck in front of his family, but doing nothing about Black Lives Matter activists who torch federal buildings. And here you go. All right, so let's talk about by the book. Mark Houck, Pennsylvania pro-life activist, arrested at his home in front of his family for an alleged violation of the Freedom of Access of Clinics Act, alleged incident which he was protesting in front of an abortion clinic. He was recently acquitted of all charges at trial. The show of force for that arrest, that decision to use that force, was that by the book? Those decisions are made as they should be by the commanders on the ground in the field office who have the expertise about when to conduct operations safely and securely for the safety of everybody involved. And to my knowledge, those processes were all followed in this case. Yeah, I mean, historically, FBI protocol is that a defendant has, if he has no criminal history, is not believed to be violent or pose a threat to public safety, that he or she is permitted to self-surrender rather than subject um, dynamic execution of an arrest And here's what I'm talking about is the dual system. You know, there's that for a pro-life activist, but not that for a Black Lives Matter protester who maybe torches a federal building um, over the summer. So that disparity, that dichotomy is what sticks in people's mind. I understand that people have their opinions. Uh, All I can tell you is that we have one standard, one standard. Uh, which is irrespective of ideology, of politics. In this country, it doesn't matter what you're upset about or who you're upset with. You don't get to express that upset with violence. And so we are agnostic as the ideology and focus on the violence. For even a white-collar arrest, there are situations where white-collar arrests have resulted uh, in shootings. So there's a whole lot of things that goes into the judgment about what is the way to conduct uh, arrests safely and securely that are made, I think, appropriately by the career agents on the ground who have the closest visibility to the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the FBI has a long history of conducting those operations with a far better track record of safety than a lot of other agencies, precisely because those people take it so seriously and so meticulously. So he implies that the uh, peaceful pro-life protester was violent. The FBI director lies like a rug. So I I thought you ought to hear that because a lot of people stopped listening to uh, watching Brett Baer a few years ago with the catastrophe of election night 
2020, and, and I don't blame you. But there's evidence, uh, you know, asking a tough question and then a tough follow-up question. Bet you didn't expect that, did you? I didn't know what to expect because I don't know where Brett Bear's head is today. But he asked some good questions. Now, I, uh, I regret that he didn't ask specifically about Ray Epps. One of the biggest agent provocateurs at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, that the FBI refuses to arrest, indict, anything. But he did ask, hey, did you have federal assets? Did you have federal agents there January 6th? So he did do better than I think a lot of people would have expected. So I got to give him some credit for that. Okay, you've been listening to episode 354 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us, contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. Well, that's the way it is. Tuesday, February 28, 2023.